there was stuff on Twitter that was coming out about loss of smell and loss of taste. Yeah. And and, and I thought, oh my goodness, that is what I've got. And, you know, it must be COVID. I mean, I never was actually tested for it because although I'm stage four um, breast with breast cancer, when I called 911 at the, at the start of my symptoms, they were like, well, unless you find it very difficult to eat and drink or you cannot breathe very well, then please stay put. Yeah. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't really want to end up in A&E on a ventilator anyway. Yeah. So I force myself to eat well. And I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate because, you know, obviously my, my immediate family, my two girls living with us and, and my husband did everything. But then I had my sisters. You've just heard from my guest today, Mary Huckle. Mary is a personal trainer, Pilates instructor, and is currently living with metastatic stage four breast cancer. I was so grateful that Mary agreed to come onto the podcast because you will hear someone who so graciously shares her story and experience of living with a terminal illness. Despite her diagnosis, however, Mary remains positive and hopeful. I felt inspired at the end of this conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Tasha Gandhi and I am your host. I'm also a breast cancer surgeon. In this podcast, we use share stories and expertise to help navigate through the world of breast cancer. So hi, Mary. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for having me, Tasha. Um, you and I connected via social media as you are quite active on a few platforms, including Instagram and Twitter. But before we get into our conversation, may I ask how you are doing now? Because I know you've been recovering from presumably COVID-19 symptoms. Are you okay now? You're well? I'm a lot better now. Yes. Um, it was just, just literally just, just before lockdown, I started to get symptoms. Um, started off with a headache and I had a temperature for about four days as well. And then I think after those four days, I started to get the cough and right. the breathlessness started to set in and just general fatigue, really, and not being able to get out, get out of bed and Gosh. having to be, wait, you know, waited on literally hand and foot by my family. Um, and it went on for about four weeks. It was terrible. I mean, I even had the loss of smell and taste, right. which was so freaky. It really freaked me out, that part. Not so much the loss of taste, but the loss of smell. Right. which I'd never experienced before, was just very odd. And that like, must have every, been really strange. Yeah, it was, because I could smell nothing, nothing. And I was I kept testing myself, you know, lemons, aftershave, mm. perfume, the strongest smells I could find, vinegar, not a thing. It was so bizarre. That's and freaky. that went on for a, a good, I would say, a good couple of weeks. Um, and I think at that time, there was stuff on Twitter that was coming out about loss of smell and loss of taste. Yeah. And, and, and I thought, oh my goodness, that is what I've got. And, you know, it must be COVID. I mean, I never was actually tested for it because although I'm stage four um, breast, with breast cancer, when I called 911 at the, at the start of my symptoms, they were like, well, unless you find it very difficult to eat and drink 
or you cannot breathe very well, then please stay put. Yeah. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't really want to end up in A&E on a ventilator anyway. Yeah. So I force myself to eat well. And I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate because, you know, obviously my, my immediate family, my two girls living with us and my husband did everything. But then I had my sisters who lived nearby as well. And they did all the shopping for me and they made food for me and they brought me juices and, you know, healthy stuff. And yeah. it's the worry as well because, you know, it's bad enough having stage four cancer, but then you've got to worry about being off treatment for four weeks, which I was. And then, you know, the the anxiety rising. And I must admit, I had a few meltdowns. I'm normally quite resilient. Mm. Um, I'm quite strong mentally, but there were days when I just couldn't hide my feelings and my emotions, for, even from my family, which I, you know, I don't want to upset them. So it was just like an insurmountable mountain, I think. I sort of yeah. like kept thinking, well, is there light at the end of this tunnel? Um, because, you know, at that moment in time, I was I was more frightened about getting COVID and having to go into hospital, you yeah. know, with symptoms that were quite, well, not getting it. I did have it, but, yeah. but just getting it bad enough to, you know, make me go into hospital. But I just thought, I can't end up in hospital. No way. So the... Um you gradually got better, you know, pro- probably within the la- the latter part of the four weeks. Would that yes, be right? Definitely, yeah. Right. I, around sort of like week three, yeah, there were some improvements, but the coughing was so persistent, and the breathlessness. And how about um, the fatigue? Because I know people who've had it, and uh, you know, like you, they didn't go into hospital. But the main thing that they had was. Th- not only the loss of sense of smell and taste, but also the fatigue. They were absolutely, completely and utterly flawed. flawed. Absolutely flawed. I had that as well. Right. Literally, I couldn't even even feel my legs. I felt that weak, as weak as a kitten, literally. It was awful. And like, you know, and one day you'd feel sort of like a little bit better and the next day you'd go right down again. Right. And the and the fatigue was just the exhaustion. It wasn't oh, it was just awful. Just you know, and I'm a personal trainer and a Pilates instructor, and I was absolutely floored by it. It was very bizarre. God, well, I am so glad that you have recovered from this um, awful virus, and for you to be able to recount this story. You mentioned earlier that you're currently living with secondary um, or metastatic or stage four breast cancer, yeah, and um, had been receiving treatment. So. Obviously, when the lockdown happened, how, how was your treatment affected, if at all? Um, well, I had I had an, an enforced break. Um, I'm actually, I would have actually been okay with with treatment continuing. Okay, had it not been for the fact that I had COVID right. symptoms, because uh, obviously my my immune system was already compromised. So the COVID in the mix just would have made it too dangerous for me to have my chemotherapy. So I had an enforced break and I still had, um, I couldn't even have a blood test in that time either because the hospital were like, no, you can't come in. Yeah. And they wouldn't come out to me. 
So I, I didn't know at the time what was happening. You know, was the disease progressing? What would happen to my markers? Would they go up? Um, so I still had consultations over the phone with my um, oncologist. That's good. Um, so I still had that, you know, connection. But he wouldn't, it was just all, he did all phone stuff and he still is doing phone stuff. He doesn't actually have face-to-face contact with anybody at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I can understand because, you know, I do, they, the last thing they would need on an oncology ward is somebody coming in with COVID-19 symptoms. So exactly. I was very, you know, I was very understanding and I knew that that's what I had to do. Um, but unfortunately, um, we're not really, we're not absolutely sure whether it's the, the enforced treatment break or if it's coincidental but when I started having blood tests after the symptoms um, lessened, my markers went up and they've gone up for the last four blood tests because I have blood tests every three weeks. Right. And they've been going up quite considerably. And it was a case of like, is it the inflammation that's mm. making them go up from the COVID or is it the, the capecitabine, the oral chemo that I was on, that has stopped working? Um, so we had to wait a while to see whether these things were going to level out or whether it was just going to continue to rise. I mean, even if they'd stayed stable with the markers, then we might have assumed, yes, it was the COVID, they'll start going down again. But I think after the fourth blood test, the third and fourth, my oncologist was very convinced that the Cape Cytopin wasn't working for me anymore. And yeah, so I've had to come off of it. We will definitely talk about where you are currently because things have changed um, a little bit um, since all of this has happened, since the COVID lockdown for you has happened. But before we go there, could you just describe, uh, first of all, when and how old you were when you were diagnosed with uh, your primary breast cancer? Um, so I was 41 years old, just literally you know, um, when I was first diagnosed, it was literally a couple of weeks before my 42nd birthday. Um, and I was always a self-checker. I'd check my breasts, you know, regularly in the shower whenever I got the chance, really, and I remembered. And I found a pea-sized lump behind my right nipple. Right. And so I deliberated over this pea-sized lump for actually for a few weeks and then my husband was like just for goodness sake just go to the doctors and just get yourself checked out and whatever so I to cut a long story short I went to the one-stop breast clinic um I had all I went on my own thinking that I only had a fibroid as my GP had told me don't worry it's probably just a fibroid we'll just get you checked out so off I went on my own even my husband was like you're gonna be fine you don't you don't need me and um, I had a barrage of tests, one after the other. And it was really unsettling because I went in with a load of other ladies sitting there. By the time I'd left, after the two and a half hours I was there, I was, I think, the last one there. And that made me think, hang on a minute, where is everyone else? Mm. But I've had all the tests. I had the aspiration, the mammogram, the biopsy the ultrasound. I had it all in those two and a half hours. And yeah, so it was really quite stressful. 
And in my mind, I kept thinking, this isn't right. I know something's not right. And I left the car, I tried to leave the car park. I left, I actually crashed into somebody's brand new golf. <laughs> no. Right. And the young man was actually sitting in it, waiting to reverse out of the car park as well. Um, but he was so lovely. He was like, don't worry. You know, there's not much damage to the cars. Oh, that's I take sweet. you back into the hospital. We'll get you a cup of tea. I said, oh my God, I just need to get home. <laughs> So I just then got back into the car and just phoned my husband and I was like, you told me I'd be okay. Yeah. And it's not okay. So I was very, very upset, obviously. Of course. A week later, I got the results and it was confirmed that I had breast cancer. And, you know, it's like everyone says it. It's just, it's just a bombshell. You just don't expect those words to be, you don't expect to hear those words. And I just sat there and I just couldn't hear anything. I think I yeah. was just completely in a bubble and I, all I could hear was echoing voices and I, the nurse sort of like came up to me with a box of tissues and I, you know, I started crying um, and, yeah, it was just an awful time, that diagnosis and the, even after the diagnosis when you go back home and you've got to tell your family, you know, you've got to tell your parents and your children and, it's just awful and it's just yeah it's it's not really it's awesome. very hard isn't it it's so difficult it's yeah. just the hardest thing was having to tell my children and trying to keep it together how old were they at that time so robert was 14 and the twin girls they were just about to start year 6 in primary school. Okay, quite so young, there was like, they? yeah, 10, yeah. you know, 9, 10, whatever they were. Um, so they're, you know, they're quite young. And we, we made the decision to not actually tell the girls at first. So we told Robert because he was older and we thought he's going to take it a little bit better. And I think I just felt different telling him. Whereas with the girls, because they've, not that Robert isn't attached to me because, you know, of course he is. But the girls are very, very attached to me. Yes. And I knew that I would find it very difficult to tell them without breaking down. So we didn't actually tell them at the beginning. But the girls being the girls, they're very, they're quite shrewd and quite perceptive. And they actually found out by looking at one of my emails. Really? Because, yeah, because they could sense that something was wrong. And wow. now if anybody asks me, should I tell my children? I'm always like, yes, absolutely. Yes. Because, you know, depending on their age, you can tell them in certain ways, but definitely tell them because if they start to worry in their own little world and then they suddenly find out from an email or a text or something because that's not very nice. Yeah. And I do regret not telling them from the start. Yes. I mean, I, you know, telling, telling, your family, uh, especially young young kids, is just really really hard. And I think I agree with you. Yeah, you know, I do. I do tell um, my patients who ask me that question. I think the best the best way to do it would be to tell them because of the reasons that you've said. Definitely, or yeah. even get someone else to tell them. A close family member. If you can't do it then, you know, get someone else to tell them. Yeah, because um, because children are very perceptive and they, they can sense when something isn't quite right, can't they? Exactly, exactly. So I've, you know, I've, I've 
learned that. I learned that. <laughs> um, you know, but I suppose because I was diagnosed almost 13 years ago with primary breast cancer. So although the nurses, you know, my breast care nurses were really helpful and, you know, you got sort of like so much information thrown at you, all these leaflets literally were coming at you from all directions. Yeah. And I didn't really read everything. And I think mostly because I was just too fright- frightened to read stuff and to Google stuff and whatever. But see, but now, even today, you know, we've moved on so much. And there's yeah. like, you can get counselling for your children if you need to. You can, you know, you can get someone else to, say, to speak to them. Even your GP could speak to them. Um, but, then in, but then 13 years ago, we didn't have as much as that. So it was quite difficult. But so yeah so yeah my advice now would be please tell your children in one way or another buy a book there are lots of books out there that you can give them no there are there are lots of books and resources out there and you know um as uh, you know as you said people are becoming more open to to opening up to their children about cancer diagnosis yeah exactly and um um, it is never going to be an easy conversation but it's it's something that has to be done at some point i think um so so you had surgery i had yes i had i I had a choice whether to have the 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 um the mastectomy or the chemotherapy first and i went for the mastectomy so that was the first thing that i had done okay was a radical right side mastectomy. I had a f- like full axilla clearance. All my lymph nodes were taken out, even though none of them were affected. But the surgeon was very much like, you're very young. Let's give you the best possible chance. Let's take them all out. Had the mastectomy, no reconstruction. I just wanted to get back to work, Tasha. Yeah, yeah. That's all I kept thinking about. I've got, a, I've got a duty of care to my clients. I've got to get back to work. What's the quickest route there? Yeah. So I had no reconstruction. And I don't mind telling, saying, I'm, I'm not large chested. I've got quite small breasts. Yes. I thought, you know what? It's not going to really make much difference. Mm. I've got a very supportive and loving husband. Who cares? Who's going to care, you know? Yeah. So, and I had, um, yeah, I just went with the mastectomy first of all. I came out. On the day of my birthday, oh, on my forty-second birthday, that was wow. the day that I left hospital. I was so thin; I'd yeah. lost so much weight from the stress and the worry, and I ate cake. <laughs> <laughs> God, I am I, glad you did yeah. because what a day! What a birthday day that was! Oh gosh, yeah, with my two drains, you know, oh, my, my new accessories. Um, I, I just sat and ate cake and had cups of tea <laughs> my family made sure that I had a really good birthday yeah um yes yeah, so it was quite difficult because having my all my lymph nodes taken out I couldn't even lift my arm off the bed when I came round from the operation really oh my god it was just so scary I thought my god what have they done to me Gosh. but obviously the exercises determination yeah. whatever I've yeah. got full range of movement in Brilliant. my shoulder um I still have the feeling of numbness which is probably a permanent thing, isn't it now? Yeah, that's there all yeah. the time. It's like I'm. It's like I'm. I've got a, a newspaper folded yes. under my arm continuously. It's like a, there's a tightness there as well. You know, it's just all. You know, it's a bit. It's odd. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't sweat from that armpit. Right. So I save quite a bit on deodorants. 
By 50%. By 50%, Tasha. They last me an age. See, um, silver lining, right? Exactly. You've got to look for the good in all these situations. Honestly, you've got to have a laugh about it as well. Um, um, yes, yeah, so I had the mastectomy and then I had six months of intense chemotherapy right. after, straight after that. Well, a month. I had to wait a month. And how, how did you cope with your chemotherapy? Gosh, it was tough. Was it? There was a there was a cumulative effect. So I had FEC, FEC mm-hmm. for the first four, and then I had docetaxel, the red one, yeah. for the last four. And the docetaxel really just floored you. Yeah, it was yeah. just like, yeah, not very nice. Um, I had I had lots of side effects. It affected all my nails, all my my toenails, my fingernails, my hair fell out, obviously. Um, I got the nausea, you know, all of that, the, um, sore mouth, you know, the, the, mm. again, the, the taste, the, the difference in taste, the palate changes quite considerably and also very, very sensitive to smells. It's a bit like being pregnant, right? but on, a, on almost like a, a much larger scale when you've got all those like weird cravings and things and whatever. So mm. at times I felt like I had two heads but you know, you sort of, you get into a little bit of like a pattern because I was having it every three weeks, the chemo. So I knew that week one I would feel horrendous. Um, but then weeks two and three I'd start to sort of feel a little bit better, you know, and that's when I'd go out and do exercise and meet up with friends and and just try and get some sort of like normality back um into my life. I did give up work though during chemotherapy because I thought it wouldn't be fair on my clients if I was like coming and going and yes. sorry, I can't come out to you today because I don't feel very well or I'm just, you know, I'm being sick down the loo. Sorry, I can't come to you. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to just give it a break, give myself a break and then really concentrate on my own fitness levels Yes, and lots of self-care and then going back to my clients. Yes, because at this moment in your life, you, you were a personal trainer mm-hmm. and you had your own business. Yeah. So um, you're having to keep your clients up to one side until yeah. you, you recovered from your own illness. Exactly, and that was a that was a that was also quite a big decision to make financially. You know, we we we. I'm not going to lie, we struggled without me working, and also because I'd built that business up from scratch. Um, yes, that was heartbreaking. That's your baby, right? my baby and you know I'd built up a reputation I was Mm. teaching classes um you know in church halls and at different venues I was teaching kids fitness in schools and and I was also I had lots of PT clients so to just suddenly just shelve all of that and say sorry I can't help you right now I have to look after myself was actually quite it was quite hard yeah because I, I, that's not me it, it, i'm helping others most of the time yeah but, but you know I, that that's the best that's the best decision really isn't it because you can't help others if if you're not well exactly but um but i, I must mention my my the middle sister because there are three sisters there are three of us i'm the oldest and my middle sister lived in the States at the time. And bless her, she did come over after my operation wow. and almost like was just like ev- there at my side, you know, so nursing me and helping me get dressed and helping me to have showers. Very, very difficult negotiating two drains 
yes. and dressing and showering and with the dressings in place, it was quite difficult as yeah. well. And it's quite stressful because, you know, you worry that the drains are quite, sometimes they're quite precarious to move about and you're, you're worried that you're going to pull it out and it can be quite uncomfortable sometimes and you're having, you know, to carry around these drains, these little plastic bottles in these bags yeah it is very cumbersome yes, isn't it it's horrible when you've got to think when you get like little bags for them now to cover everything up but yeah it's not very nice it's not just very the nice about what's going in there <laughs> <laughs> just don't look just don't look at, at all the stuff that's in those bottles so. yeah but they you know they i mean so my sister helped me out quite a lot and then my little sister was very was so good as well because after after my middle sister went back to the states you know after three weeks my little sister was there on hand right. you know looking after me as well so but I'm very lucky to have them very close lovely. by well now that now the middle one has moved back to the UK so they're both close by now they're both oh, that's close brilliant. by yeah it's, exactly it's nice to have family close by you know especially family members who you get on with of course definitely yeah. most definitely <laughs> yeah so um, I actually ended up having about a year off work yeah a year to a year and a half I'd a couple of really lovely holidays after nice. treatment ended in the March of 2008. I had a nice couple of, you know, summer holidays, which was very lovely. nice. And then that's when I, that, and that's when I thought, okay, I'm going to do Pilates now. Right. Okay. So that is, that is what sparked you to start your Pilates because before that you were a personal trainer. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. So I just thought, you know, and I, I, I didn't know anything about Pilates actually. It was my sister who lived in the states who introduced me to it, and I just started loving, you know, the, the concept. And it was such a, a difference to what I was doing with my clients, which was all like all about getting hot and sweaty, you know, getting your heart rate up. Um, whereas Pilates was the complete, almost like the complete opposite in a way. Mm. Where it was very, it's very much like a mind body. Yes. Well, it is a mind body. It's it's like yoga and strength, isn't it? Exactly. Combined. Very much with the focus on your core strength, um, which in turn helps your back, and that's why it's so beneficial for people with postural problems, and in particular with back problems. Um, so yeah, I just fell in love with it, and now the Pilates really makes my PT work a lot a lot better actually for my clients because they get the best of both worlds and I incorporate a lot of the Pilates into the PT and I think you know knowing about your course you know about your core and how the core works and its functionality and it's just amazing it's just yeah it's brilliant. I remember the first time I ever did Pilates and I really struggled and suffered through that class. And I remember walking back uh, home and um, the next day, seriously, I think I was aching in areas, in muscle areas that I didn't know existed. It was really, you know, it was to me at that time, because clearly my core strength was very, was poor. Um, but since, since then, you know, I, I love Pilates and I think core strength is something that we, we neglect and until you do Pilates you don't really realize how important your core strength is exactly it's like it's so we it's so underestimated and so it's just I know and I wish I discovered it sooner a lot sooner 
because it, it you know, postural wise, it would have really helped me. Not that my posture's yes. that bad, and I think with the years of practice, it's improved quite a lot. But it's something that I think everyone should know where their core is. I mean, even now when I have to do my beginner courses, and I always ask the question, does anybody know where their core muscles are? And I can, you know, you, you can bet your bottom dollar that people don't know where it is, yes. what it does, what it's, what the functions are, how it's all connected, and people are just amazed yes. by it. You know, it's just, and I think if you can just stick it out and you can learn the mechanics of it and the dynamics of it and what it can actually do to, for your, you know, for your, for your health and your well-being, but people don't always stick it out. Okay. They might do the first one or two sessions and then they're like, oh, what am I doing? And I don't just don't get the breath work. Yes, because it's not it's not like aerobic exercise, is it? It's more an more aerobic coordination, exercise. Um, and it's all about really quietening your mind. And you see, people have a misconception about it because they think it's, a, it's just for, for women, normally mm-hmm. for older women. Um, and that it doesn't really work your body, but what in actual case, in actual fact, it does. It's just very intense. The movements are slow; they're controlled, but the it's the intensity, you know. Yeah. Um. So, but you know, but I do have a really good um, following, and I love seeing the same people come back week after week, and just telling me how their hip problems been remedied or their their postures a lot better or you know their back problems have been almost you know they've been almost cured of them and avoided surgery and stuff like that and I just that's the job satisfaction that I get um, and I really enjoy. That's that sounds amazing so how 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 do you think uh, Pilates impacted your recovery? Wow oh immensely it was a huge benefit to me and I'm so glad that I discovered it when I did and I don't know and I just I owe my sister you know for actually introducing me to it and telling me how great it was because she was doing it doing it in the states you know like three four times a week I'm telling you Tasha just she came back with a washboard stomach <laughs> and I think in, in in about a year because we we saw like she came and visited like yearly annually it's amazing and uh, we saw her from one year to the next and I was like whoa what have you done what have you been doing and she was like well it's this thing called Pilates and I thought okay I need to get onto that yeah and because I you know I was before before I had the operation and afterwards it is very much it was it's the, it was just, it's just like physiotherapy um you know it's all wrapped into that one little thing a physiotherapy is very much pilates but without the breath work right so for me it was like a real it was a bit, it was a bonus and it it really helped my recovery immensely i got my arm functioning really well really quickly as well and i put that down to pilates and also for my mental health as well yes it really helped because it's it can be quite relaxing as yes. well as intense for me it was just eye-opening it was almost like revolutionary really um and it really helped me my recovery which is the, which was the most important thing for me and then I could just pass yeah. on my lot my knowledge and my skills you know to other people 
so you continued your recovery, obviously, you know, you, you started your uh, to become a Pilates instructor as well as a personal trainer and everything was fine. Um, and then what happened in 2014? Yes. Yeah, so I was on tamoxifen for five years after the treatment had ended, after the chemo had ended. Right. So my oncologist actually wanted me to stay on it for 10 years. <laughs> but I said, no, I felt, no, I want to have my back, my life back again. Yes. I've been cancer free for five years and I thought 10 more, five more years. I just thought, gosh, cause I was getting really quite frequent headaches with it as well. So you, it, it affected you quite, quite yeah, badly. It affected me. I got my, the brain fog was intense on some days and I did have like some joint pain as well. So in the mornings, I'd get up and feel quite stiff. So I said, no, I said, look, you've given me the choice. Can I take a break from it? He said, okay, have a break. So I was off tamoxifen for a year and a bit. And I felt so good. I felt so good again. You know, not having those joint pains in the morning, you know, just being free of those headaches it felt it felt amazing yeah but then and I was still having all my checkups with my oncologist I never had I was never discharged and then in a routine um, examination he found a lump behind my collarbone okay again a pea-sized lump which I would never have found it I would never have Although he looked, he, cause he looked after me quite well. So he always, you know, checked me over around my neck, collarbone area, armpits and everywhere. But I never really checked myself because I was seeing him regularly. I never really checked those areas myself. So, but he was one that found it in a sort of like routine checkup. And then it all just, yeah. So it was basically, although I had all my lymph nodes taken out, it was what they, they, they you know, they call it the mammary chain. Yes. So they found, so after a PET scan, they found more lymph nodes in my chest wall okay. that were affected. So then I had radiotherapy, which I didn't have in the beginning because they thought that might be overkill. Yes. I had 25 fractions of radiotherapy and I also had, uh, or my, I like saying this word, an oophorectomy. Okay. So I had my ovaries and fallopian tubes removed as well um, because I thought, you know, my cancer's estrogen receptive. I was having also, um, I started having the Zolodex injections as well to shut down the ovaries. But then I had a few months of that and then I thought, well, I've got my children. I don't really need my ovaries, so let's take them out. Yeah. So I had the, that that came after the radiotherapy. It was a bit. It started getting. It started getting intense now yeah. because now I was diagnosed. And were you restarted on any tablets? Um, so yes, I was went back. I went on to letrozole. Letrozole. Okay. So letrozole was not kind to me. Okay. Letrozole ruined my knees and my ankles to the point where I couldn't even run. Yeah. My, it was like my knees were locked and I'd end up hobbling 
after a few minutes of running. Right. And that was impacting my job. So I could I could sort of like walk, but even walking after a while would, you know, the, 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 the pain would set in and it was horrible. It was just literally like my, they were just locking. Right. Couldn't, couldn't run at all. Literally ended up, you know, it's horrible. Anyway, it was horrible. So I went back to my oncologist and I said, look, I can't really do this. Is there an alternative? And he put me on, on anastrozole, which was, he said, it's, it's the same, but it's slightly different. And that was just fine. That I did not, I did not have those pains anymore. I could go back to doing my full workouts and running with my clients and running for myself. So that was a real, oh, it was just such a relief for me. Um, so then I was on an astrozole and things were sort of like stable for a while. Yeah. Because I was actually, I was actually cancer free for seven years. Yes. And then I was diagnosed with secondary. I knew it was incurable, um, but I had to, yeah. It, I, you know, I was having regular checkups all the time now. I was being seen, I think, every four months by my oncologist. Blood tests, you know, every four months as well. But I was still working. Yeah. Um, the business was going well again. I'd, you know, built it all up. And even during the radiotherapy, I still worked during that. And after my oophorectomy, I had a few days off and then I went back to work. And, you know, the, the classes, if I had to, I just taught sitting, you know, sitting, mm. verbally cueing, you know, my class participants. And with the PT, if I couldn't do stuff, then I just used to just, again, just start demonstrating one way or another or show them pictures or something. Or I could, I just did whatever I could do. Right. But I, I was determined not to give up my business again. And so I thought, I'm going to keep work. I'm just going to keep going. So in 2014, which was seven years uh, um, after you were diagnosed with your primary breast cancer, you were told that you had secondary breast cancer. How did you digest that news? It it was well obviously it was just like being diagnosed all over again because I knew that secondary breast cancer would be life threatening and being one of you know one of the thirty percent of you know men and women that go on to get secondary breast cancer you know that figure was just like wow it's like there are seventy percent of women and men out there that don't actually have a reoccurrence. Mm. And here I am with this, you know, with this, well, yeah. I mean, how do you describe it? You can describe it as a death sentence, a terminal diagnosis. You know, I knew it was scary. I knew that it was. and But I also knew that it might, that it might come back because my, my oncologist did actually say to me, you have a 95% chance of the can of being cancer free for five years. Okay. So those those that conversation stuck in my brain, and I think and I kept thinking, well, what happens after five years? I might, I, you know, I might, I might get a reoccurrence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my cancer was diagnosed as stage one, but grade three, so I knew it was aggressive. Um. So yeah, all the all that information that I'd 
listened to at the very beginning, that stayed with me throughout even those seven years of being cancer free. Yeah. Um, you know, and I did have, I even had counselling like soon after my treatment ended as well because I couldn't cope with not having treatments and things. But anyway, so yeah, just fast forwarding back to 2014 and how I felt, you know, you just don't know. You know, when you're diagnosed with primary, your thoughts are, am I going to be here in six months' time? Am I going to be here with my kids at Christmas? You know, will, my, will I see my kids grow up? All those thoughts are there and those, those thoughts come flooding back with a secondary diagnosis but with a vengeance because then you've got all that other information that you know and then you really think, oh, my goodness, is this it? Is this it? Um, so, yeah. It's, it's difficult. I mean, how, did you have any or do you have any strategies to help? Because obviously people have, you know, good days and bad days and we all have those. Um, do you have ways to cope with the, the difficult times? Um, I think that doing the job that I do has really helped me because it's been a huge distraction because the focus is very much on helping others. Um, so that's my job first and foremost has definitely um, been life-saving for me. Yeah. Um, so that's been a real big distraction. Again, you know, like the doing breath work has always helped me. And now it's very trendy now. Everywhere you look, everyone's doing breath work. Yes. I think I've been doing that for a long, long time. And just like just spending time with friends and family and setting goals as well, making plans. There have been times where I haven't been able to plan ahead because once you get that those PET scan results that show you have progression, then you you think okay so now I can't plan what I don't until I get a plan a treatment plan in place and I know exactly how it's going to affect my time my job you know my health you, you can't plan ahead yes um so I do and there was a time um Tasha where I wouldn't even buy myself clothes because I thought what's the point of spending money on myself when I'm not going to, when I, you know, my family are going to have to get rid of it all, you oh. know, when I'm gone, it's things like that. that yeah. And I just thought it's a waste of money. I don't need clothes. Um, so I'd stop buying myself things. Um, and that was tough. That but the planning tough. is the planning ahead. When you're used to planning a holiday and you look forward to that holiday and then that's taken away from you, that's, that's tough. That's really tough because you know, you've got people around you that are like, okay, let's go here, let's do this, let's go there next year. And in your mind, you're thinking, I might not be here, mm. you know, so that's really hard. But I do actually now, I do make plans. And that's one thing that's changed over the years, Right, is why now I promise myself that I've got to make, I make even just short-term plans, I make them. And it's finding that balance between, you know, spending time with others and then spending some time to yourself as well for yourself, you know, getting into sort of like getting into almost like the, the holistic self-care as well. 
Yes. You know, learning to meditate, even if it's for five minutes a day. Um, you know, just, just really just, and I do, and I do actually do yoga as well. I don't teach yoga, but I, I go to classes and I have lots of friends who do yoga and the colleague who I do the retreat with, you know, she's obviously a, a yoga teacher. So, you know, I see her and other yoga teachers, but it's just such a lovely combination, mm. yoga and Pilates. It's great. Um, so I do, I have slowed down a lot as well. So that was, uh, I'm just trying to think now, 2014, you were given the diagnosis or you were told you had secondary breast cancer. Were you fine all that time or did something, did another event happen? Yeah, so I was stable for a while on the anastrozole. And then it was in, so I'm trying to, trying to remember the dates now because I've been on so many treatments and had all these things done. Yeah, because I actually, because I remember now, I had the, the lymph node that was behind my collarbone, I had that removed as well. Okay, so you had surgery for that. So I had surgery for that. But the lymph nodes in my chest, they were like, no, we won't touch those because it's it, that is a big operation. Okay. And it would have me- meant, you know, sort of like breaking the ribs. Yes. Going behind them. And my oncologist kept saying, once we get in there, you know, I don't want to scare you. I don't know what I'm going to, we don't know what we're going to find, what the yeah. surgeon's going to find. And it might make it an even bigger operation. So we decided to leave those. Okay. Um, so I was on an astrozole. And then I was on an astrozole for, a, I think it was a couple of years. And it was in 2017, I believe, that a PET scan showed progression. And I now had it in the liver and in like my bones as well. Okay. So, and there were a few suspicious bits and bobs in my lungs as well. So the disease had progressed. Yeah, it had progressed. It had progressed. Mm. And, and then it was a case of just, oh God, then I was on Exomestane, Everolimus. I was on like lots of different bits and pieces. Um, and it was really 2018, 2019, which were really quite significant for me because I had so much, tr- so many different treatments. I thought I almost lost track, but nothing was working. Were you, did you have any symptoms? No, no, okay. I didn't. Um, and I think that for me, that's a good thing because I hear a lot of people that have pain and have to have pain management and whatever. And I will go on to sort of like, you know, update mm. this conversation. But, you know, I didn't really need any of that. Okay. But then I had, I had liver ablation. I had RFA radio frequency ablation to the liver to kill off the tumours there. I had two tumours and that worked really well. And then I had CyberKnife as well on my sacrum because that's where it initially was, in my liver and in my sacrum. That was the progression the, okay. at the time. 
And so the, the cyber knife worked really well on my sacrum and the RFA, the ablation worked well as well on my liver. So then that was in the January of 2018. And then, yeah, towards the end of that year and then 2019 as well, which was all a bit of a blur because I was on different treatments. And then I had, towards the end of 2019, I was on full restraint and palbocyclib. Gosh, you were on a lot of different drugs, weren't you? No wonder, yeah, not, not surprised there's a bit of a blur. Yeah, in fact, you know what, Tasha, I'm just, I'm just thinking now, the ablation and the um, cyber knife was at the beginning of 2019. So last year, beginning of last year? Yes, okay. that's right. And then I was stable for a while. Then in the summer... Yes, great. Everything's working really well. The markers have gone down. This and that and the other. But then, it was in the it was in the late summer of two thousand and nineteen that I started getting more progression, and I was put onto fulvastrant and palbocyclib. Then, okay. So palbocyclib destroyed my white blood cells. Mm. And, you know, my neutrophils were just literally nothing. I had no immune system, what's what you know, whatsoever, and he. We continued with just the full restraint, which are those, those those. Do you know those those lovely big bottom injections? Yes. Wow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it there. <laughs> um, so we continued with those with because the, they're the hormone therapy side, but that didn't work. Okay. Because the, the plan was to allow my my neutrophils to sort of like rise again, and then get me back onto the palbocyclib. But it just my body just couldn't take it. Right. You know, it just wouldn't. Yeah. So, okay, let's come off of that now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get you on something else. You need you need some white cells around to yeah, fight infection. Exactly. Don't you? After palbocyclib and fulvastrant, I was put on paclitaxel. Right. Okay. So I had nine weeks of weekly paclitaxel. God. My, my hair fell out again for the second time. I lost everything, my, you know, all eyebrows, eyelashes, everything. That was tough. People say to you, but it's only hair. I know it's only hair, but two years before that, I'd actually stopped dyeing my hair as well. Right. So I'd grown my hair out. I had just grey you know, hair, mm-hmm. grey salt and pepper hair, and I'd grown it to a really nice length. And I loved oh, my hair, no, Tasha. And you lost it all again. And I lost it all. Um, so it was a really big thing for me to stop dyeing my hair as well. Yeah. To go through that, go through that, you know, growing out process. But then I'd not had a longer hairstyle in quite a while. So to have it long again was lovely. But anyway, so I lost everything. And it paclitaxel did nothing. Okay. Did nothing at all to help me. So that was a real blow because I'd gone through all of this and it hadn't worked. And so and then you, you went you went on Cape Side to be in after that. So we, yes. That's it. So and then so now I'm I'm at the point of having PET scans every three months and I had more progression um in the liver. 
and a bit bit more progression in the bones. Um, so capecitabine, it kept me stable for a couple for a few months. I don't know, three months, whatever. Um, and then I had um, a pet. So where are we now? We're in June, aren't we now? Yeah, June. So the recent developments is in and around COVID time now. Yeah. So now we're sort of like, we're just about to, yeah, because I had my PET scan in January, which showed me stable at that time. So we had, I had a little bit of like, you know, great, some stability, Mm. you know, capes working a little bit, nothing really too, you know, major, but it, you know, it was working. Um, but then COVID came along and so then I had to come off treatment and my latest PET scan, which was last Tuesday, showed further progression. So I've, it's now in my ribs, my pelvis and um my spine there are, are quite a few spots quite widespread Gosh, so I'm so sorry Mary. cervical thoraco lumbar spine okay which you know means up and down my spine basically um so it's really quite I don't know how in bad it is in my spine but the liver has also got more progression and that's quite intense in my liver so and also in the time that I've been off treatment and I have been feeling a few twinges here and there because it's funny because sometimes cancer pain comes and goes doesn't it yes and I didn't know that but then I kept thinking well it's okay because whatever that pain was I was having it's gone but then it might come back you know a bit later. And where where were you getting these niggly pains? In the niggly, the waves of pain. I had one weekend, a couple of weekends ago, where I get I got like waves of like in my right hand side. Okay. Which made me think, is that my liver? You know, or is it stress or is it anxiety? And also what I have to deal with is because of my work, I do get pains and aches and pains. Yeah you know, from different exercises or I get, I might get DOMS, you know, delayed onset of muscle soreness or so I do. So I have to try and somehow decipher what's, what's what. Do I tell my oncologist about this pain? Do I wait? You know, would it go? So anyway, so, but anyway, so there is progression. I've had that, I had that news last week and it worries me. What worries me now is how it's going to affect my work. Yeah. And can I still do high impact exercise? Or am I at risk of fractures and things like that? So um, so it's in my ribs as well. It was in my ribs before, but it's progressed. So yeah, it's all, it's widespread. It's low volume widespread in most areas. But the liver, I think, is the main concern, although my liver function is still good. Okay, well, that's that's encouraging, isn't it? Yeah, that's encouraging. So that's, so that's good. Um, so that uh, you've had to, you've had a change of treatment then, I'm, I'm assuming. So now, so yesterday, 
I had my first dose of erubulin, um, intravenous erubulin. Okay, so they've so stopped capecitabine. Capecitabine stopped, and thank goodness I didn't have to have a washout period. Yeah. You know, we've got the drugs approved straight away, and I started it yesterday. So I had my PET scan last Tuesday, got the results. No, I had it last Wednesday, sorry, my PET scan. Got my results the following day on the Thursday. Had my blood test on Monday, just gone, and started my chemotherapy yesterday. Um, so it's all gone, you know, thank goodness, because I thought if he tells me that I've got to have a month of washing out, that is going to take my anxiety to another level. Yeah. Um. So I just thank goodness he was like, you know, we can get you on it straight away. That's really good. So um, how often are you going to get this and for how long? Do you know? So, yeah, so, well, for as long as it works, I okay. think. Because this is the thing now, every treatment I've had, I've never had an end date. It's always been, you're on it for as long as it works. So that's 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 the way the cookie crumbles now yeah <laughs> you know I'm on treatment for life and it's just a case of and that's why I just want stability I want a reprieve I've had a year and a half of progression and I need some sort of like I need something to hold on to and I just keep hoping and praying that you know the next treatment is the right one and and the thought of exhausting my options is really scary. Yes. Because the longer I'm living, the scarier it gets. I'm already beating the odds. You know, the, the, the median is two to three years after a secondary diagnosis, or it could be two to five now, I'm not sure. But I'm beyond that. Uh, it will be six years for me in August. So, yeah, I just want there's got to be something out there that's going to work, and it, it's got to be with this one. Yeah, fingers crossed, Mary. Fingers crossed. Yeah. You know, Cape Cytobin was supposed to be my Cape Crusader. That's it. It let me down. Well, let's hope Eribrolin yeah. will will work this time. Exactly. I'm sorry to hear about the the disease progression, and it, it's you. You know, just having had this conversation with you, it's so obvious that you are a positive type of person who always tries to look at the positive side of things and for some this is you know is is an example i guess of how you can cope with really difficult circumstances because living with secondary breast cancer must be really tough mm. yeah you you have highs and lows it's um it's just an, an emo, and a, the, you know we use the term quite a lot. It's an emotional roller coaster. You know you're constantly coping with emotions and feelings. Um, one day you're up, the next day you're down. You're dealing with the physical side of things as well, and you're also dealing with constantly trying to protect your family. And that I do that that part I struggle with quite a lot because I don't want to upset my family with my bad news all the time. Mm. And we've had so many setbacks in the last few years 
And that's hard because you're constantly going back and having to tell people the news. And of course, you know, every setback you have, you, you think, well, is this it? Is this the, 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 you know, is this the final bit of news that I'm going to get? Um, and that is tough. That is really, really hard. That's why distraction is absolutely paramount. You know, if you can cope with being left alone, with all of that going on, that's fine. You, you need some sort of like time to yourself. But otherwise, just spend time with family, friends, enjoy your life as much as possible, make every day count. Yes. And, you know, set yourself little goals, make those plans, you know, just keep smiling because the world smiles back back at you if you keep smiling. Yes. Yeah. No, keep I think... exercising. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's tough. It really is tough. I'm not going to lie. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're, you're active on social media, um, Twitter, oh, yeah, that, Instagram. That helps as well. Yeah, I was just wondering, do you think, because, you know, you share your stories, you, you spread positivity, you inspire people. Why do you think sharing stories is so important? And do you think you've benefited from that? Well, I think, you know, initially, because I started working with the, with charities I've done quite a lot of work with the charities as well so I do quite a lot of you know raising awareness and raising funds for the charities and initially when I started working with them sharing my story was to help others to sort of like make people understand actually having cancer didn't have to be the be all and end all and it wasn't perhaps the you know the death sentence that people you know thought it might be so I just felt like sharing my story was just helping others and I think it's just I've always had that thing in me about helping others yes and I've always had you know the 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 thing in my head where every everything happens for a reason and there you every every adversity you can find that silver lining you can find the good you know and I that and that's what I did I just turned my misfortune into something positive um and I might have not done half of the things that I that I've done since being diagnosed you know had I just been carrying on you know with my life as it was before my diagnosis I don't know but sharing my story has become for me very cathartic so I feel like I'm helping others, but then it's helping me as well. Yes. So, you know, I write my blogs and share my story because it helps me as well. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I would like, I'd love to write a book. Oh, do One day. And, you know, in my mind I'm thinking, God, is, is it just imposter syndrome? Am I good enough to write a book? But um, I'd love to write a book. And there have been people that have written books from their experience and I'd like to do that too and I think it would be like a, a really nice legacy to leave behind as well. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me and the listeners today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Um, and please do write that book um, because I think it will help many, many people who are in similar situation as you and I'm sure they'll derive a lot of 
comfort and inspiration from it. So definitely write that book. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I feel, should I have been calling you Dr. Tasha? Oh, <laughs> should you be calling me Dr. Tasha? <laughs> yeah. No, just call me Tasha. Because <laughs> I've been calling you Tasha and I think, oh God, is that just being disrespectful to Dr. Tasha? Uh, honestly. Because she's got such an important job. No. Oh my Lord, please, no, please call me Tasha. That's my name. Oh, yeah. It's been such a lovely conversation with you. I know, you know, honestly, thank you so much for coming on. And if, if people want to connect with you, where would they go? Where, where, where should they go? So my website is www.breakthroughfitness.co.uk. So breakthroughfitness is all one word, .co.uk. That's my website. Okay. So my Twitter handle is at Mary underscore Huckle. And my Instagram is just Mary Huckle. Okay. You'll find me quite easily on there. And then on Facebook, um, I am just at Mary Huckle. (laughs) Great. So that's Huckle, H-U-C-K-L-E. K-L-E. That's correct. I have got um, a Facebook page for Breakthrough Fitness as well. And that's just at Breakthrough Fitness 1. I think it is. Great. I I will leave all of these in in the show notes for this episode. And, you know, people, please connect with Mary and, um, and, you know, send, send, send some love and um, connect with each other. So thank you so much, Tasha, for asking me to come on today. Thank you for coming. That's my pleasure as well. All right. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. Thanks thanks so much, Mary. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much once again to Mary Huckle for coming onto the podcast and for being an amazing, uh, amazing guest. For those who haven't connected with Mary on social, I would definitely recommend you do so. You can um, connect with Mary on Twitter at Mary underscore Huckle and on Instagram and Facebook at Mary Huckle. And her website is breakthroughfitness.co.uk. And I will leave all of these links in the show notes at mybreastmyhealth.com forward slash episode 18. So I've been really enjoying producing these episodes and having amazing conversations with so many amazing people. And um, the, the problem is with podcasts though, is I don't hear back from you guys. And so what I would really appreciate if you have a few minutes to spare would be to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast. And um, yeah, that would really help me out because it will help the show to get more discovered by people. And hopefully it will help more people at the same time. And also you can connect with me on social media as well. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Dr. Tasha G. So that's D-R Tasha G. So once again, thank you so much for listening and I will catch up with you in the next episode. Take care. Bye. Thank you.